A brand new Channel 5 original drama. Two ten-year-old girls went missing yesterday evening in the small town of Soham, Cambridgeshire. Based on real events. H-U-N-T-L-E-Y. Come on, Maxine. It wasn't him. I can't, I can't, I can't go to prison. No one's going to prison. Maxine starts Monday the 10th of October at 9 on Channel 5 and My5. In 1964, Fayetteville, North Carolina, 11-year-old Terry and 6-year-old Alan Westerfield would go to one of their favourite places, the Broadway movie theatre, to see a double feature. They would seemingly vanish into thin air by the time their stepfather went to pick them up several hours later. Did the boys run away from the unhappy household? As their stepfather's story unravels, it seems that a more ominous reason for the boys' disappearance may be involved. Sergeant Carl Bock being the one and only suspect in the missing persons case, a case that spans almost six decades without any answers. This is Terry and Alan's story. I have struggled where to begin with this episode, Do you start where we normally do, with the birth of the child or children in question? This case, though, the rabbit hole that has a massive part in this case, it needs to be addressed right off the bat. Early 1950s, 18-year-old Margaret Crawford met 28-year-old Carl Bock when they were both working at the Fort Bragg military base in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Bock immediately showed a romantic interest in the gorgeous teenager, but given the large age gap, she considered him more like a brother than a lover. But the two became very close, and I think that Margaret, or Margie as her friends called her, I think that Margie did enjoy the attention Bok bestowed on her. Everything seemed to be going well, until Margie met a new cadet, Melvin Westerfield, or Mel as he'll be known in this story. She was obsessed with a handsome new addition to the base, and he was equally bestodded with her. The two would quickly fall in love, but she never let on to Bok of the new romance. Bok was so in the dark with Margie's new boyfriend that he would even propose to her during this time. And for reasons that are beyond my understanding, Margie would accept this proposal, even though she and Mel Westerfield were getting quite serious during this time. Lucky for Margie, Bok would be reassigned shortly after this to an undisclosed location. He would write numerous love letters to Margie, whilst Margie would go ahead and marry Mel. A year later, February 7th, 1953, Terry Lee Westerfield would be born. And then four years later, on August 24th, 1957, Alan John Westerfield would complete the family. Sometime during Margie and Mel building this perfect family life for themselves, life was not going so well for Bock. He would be charged with a crime, either robbery or assault. It's not exactly clear which or the details involved, but he would be sentenced. And given the choice of serving a lengthy sentence in federal prison or returning to active duty, Bok chose the latter. And he would eventually be assigned back to Fort Bragg military base, where he would find his way back into Margaret Westerfield's life. 
Things get murky and unclear after this point. At some point, Margie would divorce the boy's dad and remarry. But this marriage would not last long and again end in divorce. At this point, Margie and Bock would rekindle their romance, and the decades-long engagement would finally lead to marriage, Margie's third. Now, it seems that Bock never really talked to the boys, and he never became a father figure in their lives. If anything, I would say he resented Terry and Alan for taking the attention of Margie away from him. But this marriage would be short-lived too, and by September 1964, when our story takes place, Margie and Bock would be going through the process of divorcing. Bock had moved out of the family home on 3705 Madison Avenue and back onto the Fort Bragg military base. Again, what I understand from my research, it wasn't the most healthiest of relationships or the happiest of marriages. There seemed to be a lot of fights, and Margie spending more and more time away from her husband and at the NCO club on Pope Air Force Base, another military base close to their home, and she would go with friends until the early morning hours. From all accounts, Margie was doing a fabulous job with Terry and Alan. They were happy and well-adjusted, respectful and well-behaved. They just loved being boys. They loved roughhousing. They rode their bikes every day, and they adored going to the movies, in particular to see westerns and sci-fis. They were so freaking adorable too. They looked like polar opposites. 11-year-old Terry had red hair with these gorgeous freckles covering his face, where 6-year-old Alan had these beautiful baby chubby cheeks and massive blue eyes. They were each other's best friend, Terry being very protective over his baby brother. 1964. Margaret Westerfield had to work. She was a beautician at a hair salon in downtown Fayetteville, North Carolina. She had a regular babysitter, Margaret Temple, who would come and watch the boys while she was at work. Barbara was like a member of the family, and Margie would later say she trusted her unconditionally, and Terry and Alan loved her too. Terry and Alan would spend the great part of their day either out in the neighbourhood on their bikes or watching the weekend cartoons on the television. Around noon, Sergeant Carl Bock would turn up at the Westerfield family home. He was insistent that Barbara go home and he would keep an eye on Terry and Alan until Margie finished work. Barbara would later state that this made her feel uneasy. She knew about what was happening in Margie and Bock's relationship, and she didn't feel comfortable leaving the boys without Margie's say-so. However, about an hour later, she would be convinced to leave. The last confirmed sighting of either boy was Alan riding his bike outside the family home at around 1pm. What happens next? It's purely Bock's version of events. And given what we are about to learn... 
it is extremely debatable the truth of this version of events. But since this is all we have, let's go through what happened next, according to Karl Bock. Early afternoon, several friends of both Terry and Alan would stop by, wanting the boys to come out to play. Bock would tell these friends that Terry and Alan were being punished for something, it's not clear what, and they were in their bedrooms and not allowed to talk. 4pm, a neighbour would see Bock reversing his car out of the driveway. It's not clear if this neighbour saw either Terry or Alan or both in the car as well. It's not mentioned in any contemporary news articles that they were seen in the car with Bock. But here is the first discrepancy in Bock's story. According to Bock, he was driving the boys to the Broadway movie theatre in Fayetteville to see the double feature of No Name on a Bullet, a western starring Audie Murphy, and a science fiction film, The Atomic Man. But the movie started at 4pm, the same time Bock was seen leaving the home. Now I guess it is possible the drop-off of the boys happened earlier, and Bock came back and then left again at 4pm for whatever reason. The neighbour may have not seen the earlier trip, and the second trip at 4pm may explain why this neighbour didn't see Terry and Alan in the car. However, the boys were in trouble, they were being punished, they weren't allowed to go out and play with their friends. Why were they then permitted to go to the movies only hours later? That part never made sense to me either. The next time mark is 5.30pm, when Margie arrives home from work. Barbara isn't there, her boys aren't there, and instead Bock is sitting on the couch in the living room. Bock would relay the story about Terry and Alan going to the movie theatre, that he had planned on picking them up at 8pm. An argument would ensue. Why did Bock tell the babysitter to leave? He had no right being there. He didn't live there anymore. Margie would storm out of the home and head to the NCO club she had been frequenting. However, when she returned at 1am, Terry and Alan still weren't there. The two again started arguing. Obviously panicked, Margie demanded to know where her sons were. Bock would not give her a consistent story. In any version he did give, it didn't make any sense. So at 2am, Margie reported Terry and Alan missing to the local police. The Cumberland County Sheriff's Office were immediately on the scene. They would question Bock to try and determine exactly what happened. He would repeat the story of the afternoon, how he returned to the Broadway theatre at around 7.45, 15 minutes early for the agreed pick-up time, and he parked in the theatre's no-parking zone. Bock told police he waited there for almost two hours, until 9.30, before deciding that Margie must have already gotten the boys, and he left. Now, there are several parts to this story that didn't make sense then or now. To me, to Margie, to the police. I am sure there is a lot of hinky you guys are listening to. Why park in the no-parking zone? Especially considering, in his own words, he was 15 minutes early. I know if I park in the no-parking zone, it's when I'm going to be there for a few minutes, temporarily waiting for someone. To me, in my opinion, it seems like he wanted an alibi. Like he knew someone would see and remember a car sitting in the no-parking zone for two hours. He would be able to find someone who remembered seeing him waiting for Terry and Alan that night.
Secondly, Bok claims he just assumed Muggy got the boys and he left. That sends up red flags for me. Wouldn't he be mad if this happened? He told Muggy he was going to get them, and then she went behind his back and did it anyway without telling him. I would be so mad at my kid's dad if he had me waiting somewhere for two hours. Also, wouldn't he have seen her pick them up if he was waiting there that long? Because police found all that suspicious too, they went and questioned the theatre staff, who knew Terry and Alan well. They were regulars. The theatre even knew Margie's strict rules for the boys, that under no circumstances were they to leave the safety from the interior of the theatre until she came in and got them. Employees at the theatre said they were sure the brothers had not been in attendance that night. They also confirmed that Bok never went in to ask about the boys or to look for them during the two hours he apparently waited for them at the front. One of these theatre employees was Bok's new girlfriend, Judy Sanders. She would state, quote, They were regulars. I recognised their picture. Who wouldn't with their red hair and freckles? I told policemen that they never came in that night. Unquote. And it wasn't only Bok's story, it was his behaviour said Sheriff's Detective Lieutenant Bruce Moore, quote, From the time we arrived, for the first hour, he was an emotional train wreck. He must have changed his seat position a million times. Once he realised we weren't going to charge him, Bok's demeanour turned into absolute, unadulterated arrogance. Unquote. He was uncooperative right from the get-go. He did not speak warmly of Terry and Alan. He refused to call them by their names, instead only referring to them by them and those boys. At one point, he chillingly and emotionlessly told police, quote, You know, I was the last one to see them alive. Unquote. To date, almost 60 years later, Sergeant Carl Bock has been the only suspect ever named in the disappearance of Terry and Alan Westerfield. Unfortunately, the search for Terry and Alan was hampered right from the start. Not only because of Bok's inconsistent story, but because of poor weather. The weather was ominous that evening, with the remnants of Hurricane Dora moving through the area, dumping more than two inches of rain that night alone, washing away any potential evidence before Margie even reported the boys missing. Days would quickly turn into weeks and then years. Investigators would find nothing not even a piece of clothing, not a solid witness, no bodies, nothing. Margie could not cope losing her entire family in one night, and she would spend time in a psychiatric hospital after the disappearances to help her deal with the grief and guilt of never seeing her children again. The boy's father, Mel, took on the burden for both parents, and he did all he could to find answers, and he documented these efforts in a diary. He would go wherever a person would give him a tip, and he would actively pursue these leads on his own. He consulted mediums, and they would give him direction, and he would pursue it tirelessly. Mel would spend the rest of his life searching for his sons, before his depression caught up with him, and it became all too much. Marvin Westerfield lost his mental health battle, and he suicided in 1978. The Cumberland County Sheriff's Office said they believed Terry and Alan were killed on the night they disappeared, most likely at the hands of their stepfather. They could just never prove it. Their disappearances remain classified as a missing persons case. 
You will find their sweet faces on any missing persons database alongside age progression sketches, showing what they may look like as adults and now old men. Investigators from the Cold Case Task Force and the FBI interviewed Carl Bock several times in the early 2000s. He would prove hostile and unwilling, an offer of immunity in exchange for information on the location for the boys' bodies was turned down. The Westerfields believe the military know Bock had something to do with the disappearances, but they covered it up because of Bock's history and his status as a military policeman. In 2016, Sergeant Carl Bock would die and be buried with military honours, almost a slap in the face to the remaining Westerfield family. So what happened to Terry and Alan Westerfield? Was Bock responsible in disappearing them? Bock basically was the only person to see the boys in a 12-hour period between 1pm and 1am, giving him plenty of time to dispose of their bodies and any evidence. My thoughts are the reason he didn't go into the theatre to ask for Terry and Alan, for one, I doubt they were ever there, and for two, even though asking for the boys at the theatre would look good for his story... He still didn't do it. Maybe he didn't want anyone to know they were missing yet. Maybe he hadn't gotten rid of the evidence yet. It also seems like an opportunity to delay the investigation even further. He knew Margie was out with a friend at the NCO club. Maybe he even knew she wouldn't be home until the early morning hours. And on top of all of that, it was storming that night. Power outages and flooding due to Hurricane Dora. I think Bock knew what he was doing. But what if Bock was not directly involved? This needs to be considered. Did Terry run away and take his younger, beloved brother with him? Was the family friction that bad between the boys and Brock that meant Terry didn't want to be there anymore and wanted to protect his baby brother? Did they resent Bock's intrusion into their family? Did they resent their mother for allowing it? Children do not disappear into thin air, especially at 11 and 6 years old. Were they abducted? Did Bok go out without them at 4pm when he claimed he was taking them to the movie theatre? But instead of driving them, he gave the Westerfield brothers orders not to be there when he returned. Maybe Bok thought somehow without the boys in her life, it would save their marriage. In 1994, Margie did a rare interview with a Fayetteville observer. Margie would say she thought the boys were still alive and she was never going to give up hope. Quote, There's always a part of you that wants to believe they are still alive, somewhere. I hope and pray they will be found alive. But that's only a hope. Sometimes I don't think God would let me die without knowing what happened to my children. Unquote. Heartbreakingly, Margie would not get her wish. Margaret Westerfield would pass away in 2003 after a long illness. Terry Westerfield was 11 years old at the time of his disappearance. He was 4 foot 7 and 89 pounds with red hair and blue eyes. He had a face full of freckles and lost an adult bottom tooth. Alan Westerfield was 7 years old at the time of his disappearance. He was 3 foot 10 and 80 pounds with sandy brown hair and blue eyes. It is not clear what Terry and Alan were last seen wearing as this has never been reported. If Terry and Alan are still alive today, Terry would be 69 and Alan 65 years old. 
If you have any information regarding the disappearances of Alan and Terry Westerfield, please contact the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office on 910-323-1500. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice, and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. The missing crypto queen's billionaire scammer. It starts to get very scary, very fast. How did gangsters drug baron finally get caught? He was taken completely unawares. Why were Burn Wild's environmentalists labeled eco-terrorists? They were getting away with it, but that wouldn't last. Uncover a new case while you're stuck in traffic. Listen to True Crime Podcasts on BBC Sounds.